The Present, Chapter 29 Ben laughed and launched himself into his father's arms. Ben! cried Ian, dropping his shovel and catching his son. Don't jump without warning me, especially with the sun behind you. Ben's arms wound around his father's neck. You caught me, he giggled. Yeah, kid, smiled Ian. Always will. The late afternoon sun had drifted behind the barn. The spiderweb fingers of the bare trees reached blindly above the corrugated roof. Hugging his son, Ian looked up and suddenly realized that he had not seen an airplane contrail for weeks. God's clouds roamed freely. The fading lines of man's ambitions had disappeared completely. He looked up the line of his trench. In a sudden warm snap, he had decided to dig a drainage ditch so that the melting snow in spring would not drown his house. Although Ian's muscles had begun to adjust to his daily labor, today had been tough. His lower back ached and his shoulders pulsed with moving blood. It had taken him weeks to start straightening out his posture from the increasing question mark he had curled into after years of working desk jobs. I was barely a biped, he thought with a shiver. What do you want to do tonight, buddy? Stories! Ian smiled. It was always the same answer. Ian would make up tall tales about his son having adventures. Ben would then choose what he did, and the story would unfold from his choices. Sure beats falling asleep to Toy Story 4. Ian had been surprised how much creativity had been unlocked within him. In the past, he had only consumed stories. Now, he created them with his son, and Cassie joined in sometimes as well. Characters and descriptions and twists and turns flew up from unguessed recesses deep within his brain. It always seemed like a vague miracle that these stories came together at all, but they always did. Ben threw himself into these imaginary worlds with great abandon and zero self-consciousness. Ian loved watching his son's little hands closing into fists during times of storytelling tension. Our birthright, stolen from us by professionals, who can't have us making up our own stories when we can be so easily programmed by other peoples. In the city, in the past, Ian had always been jumping from one phase of unease to another. An alarming letter from a bank a tax collector, a performance review, a disgruntled colleague or irrationally angry client, a necessary confrontation with his wife, the fear of phone calls from his son's daycare. He realized now, in the deep, clean air of the country, that he could have very easily skated from one end of the cracking ice of life to the other, forever terrified of stopping and falling and freezing. It wasn't the end of everything. It was the beginning. Sure, he sometimes missed the vapid candy-floss distractions of the big screens, the infinite outrage hamster wheel of scrolling through social media, the, the sugar of the fatty snacks, upgrading hardware, and the strange pleasure it gave him to update the apps on his phone by hand, even though he knew that it would happen automatically otherwise. He recalled his vague unease whenever his phone offered an upgrade to its operating system. Was he getting some special flavor with a backdoor for the intelligence agencies? 
Ian would even check online to make sure other people were getting an update as well. Everyone knew that this could not last, this new Eden. Oliver had said as much in the previous night's council. Yeah, it's calm for now, but for sure this is just a consolidation phase. The power junkies are just gathering steam, organizing themselves. Everyone knows we've got this whole class of people who only live on the sweat of others. We're sweating, and they're coming. Oliver led them all in making plans to move further away, deeper into the wilderness. We don't know how far we'll have to go. We might be chased to the ends of the earth, but we're still way too close to the city. If they're strong, they'll try to take us over. If they're weak, turn us against each other, or try. He gestured at all the faces in the barn. We all know each other, trust each other. (sighs) Try scamming, good luck. But the city breeds exploiters. We all know those who fell into the pit of vanity. There are pretty people here, but we know everyone well enough to know if they're pretty through and through. Only strangers respond to surface beauty. Cassie nudged Ian in the ribs, leaning over her distended belly. He's still thinking of Rachel, see that? Ian shrugged. She's coming, I guarantee you. She'd never miss this birth. I hope so, replied Ian, hoping that it sounded true. Heck, Arlo was halfway to Tarzan as it was. He'll be in his element, swinging from tree to tree out of the city. Ian knew how important it was to keep stress away from his wife. He never even told her about Aunt Crystal's final texts. They had come in a flurry all at once, in the middle of the night, on her phone. Normally, Cassie was a light sleeper, especially when pregnant, but she had somehow slept through the machine-gunning chimes. Ian had scanned through them. They were spread over ten days, inexorably increasing in terror and regret. Lengthy rambles about people Ian didn't know, apologies and promises, bitter dispensed wisdom concerning lessons Cassie had learned years ago, a desire for a child to be named after her since she had none of her own, apologies to be passed along to Rachel and Arlo for seducing them into a life of eternal adolescence. Endless regrets for mere fame, material rewards, trophies and bylines, and the heavy self-importance of first-class travel. A strange desire to pass her love and sorrow along to her ex-husband for not being strong enough to save him from himself. Ian felt sick as he scrolled. All these people, all these regrets, but who is thinking of her at the end? And, oh God, the confessions. She had slept around, that was why her marriage had failed. One affair had resulted in a pregnancy, which had resulted in an abortion, which was why she was so aggressively pro-choice. Even now, near the end, she still relished her old decision. Imagine my regret if I had brought life into this dying world. The unbelievable blindness. For a writer, it was remarkable, at least to Ian. She's writing to her pregnant niece, thanking her ancient lucky stars that she killed her own baby decades ago because babies are better off dead than facing what's coming, what is here. 
Ian ground his teeth in the dark, knowing with absolute certainty that if he could somehow communicate his moral horror to Crystal, she would be wide-eyed with surprise and genuine sorrow, holding up her hands and claiming with complete sincerity, that was the amazing part, that she never meant to offend. And Ian knew that he could talk until he was blue in the face. He knew this from experience. And he would find absolutely no purchase on the slippery ice wall of the empty chamber her heart was supposed to live in. Crystal would say the most horrible and offensive things and then immediately back away in shock if confronted. It was always and forever the fault of her victim for being offended. But she was magnanimous enough to refrain from saying honest things that offended the hysterical sensibilities of those around her. How nice. And she sure as hell got her hooks into Rachel, and that probably killed them both. After silencing the phone, Ian had sat on the toilet and spent over an hour individually deleting each of the hundreds of messages. Of course, he thought about deleting the entire contact history, but that would alert Cassie, and he had vowed to tell the truth about everything he was asked about. Provide and protect, provide and protect, he thought. We can't save her, so what is the stress for? As he got to the last few messages, Ian paused. I don't want to die in here. I want the sun on my face when I go. I haven't changed anything. I'm still an atheist. I hope the worms will enjoy my body as much as I have enjoyed my life. If you don't settle down, you just live in a cloud. I love you all. Time to recycle. And that was it. Ian suddenly remembered an argument he had had with Crystal well, years before about her rampant environmentalism. If you cared about the environment, the first thing you would do is get rid of central banking. Central bankers create money out of thin air, which they then pump into the economy, which drives up consumerism, which destroys nature's scarce resources. National debt, you want to get rid of that first thing. All debt is just the consumption of things in the here and now that you can't afford. That's what's killing nature. Crystal had just waved her hand in irritation and called him a capitalist apologist. What does that even mean? Ian had cried. It means that you just love the current system and will make up any excuse to maintain it. What are you talking about? The current system is built on debt. I want to eliminate all that debt. I have a kid coming. My first. And he's going to be born already indebted a million dollars. Don't talk to me. Having children is so bad for the environment, I can't even tell you. Oh, and all your first-class travel across the world, millions of miles, that's just tickling nature's prostate? Crystal had laughed harshly. <laughs> of course, you think that nature is a man, so predictable. And you want your pension, right? Your social security? But you're not having any children. Who is going to pay for it? That's what immigration is for. And besides, I damn well paid into that system, thank you very much. There's nothing there. They take your money, they spend it on whatever they want, and then they throw an IOU into a dusty vault. And that's your pension, right there. Then Cassie had gone off on immigration, and the entire conversation had been derailed. 
and Ian's knuckles had been white on his steering wheel as they drove slowly home, stuck in endless, stalled traffic. In the dark bathroom, Ian smiled sadly. Well, at least they don't have to worry about her collecting her pension anymore. Aunt Crystal had loved vampire romance novels, trumpeting this deviation from her generally literate tastes as postmodern and ironic. But one day, when Crystal was leaning over Ben's baby crib, Ian had shivered, seeing her as a literal vampire inhaling the fluids of youth. Her ideas and greed enslave my baby. It seemed to Ian to be a peculiarly male trait to track the distant threads from concepts to realities. He would try and trace these subtle paths for the women around him to show them how their blind beliefs were leading the world to ruin, but he had very little luck. Over the years, he had given up on this Sisyphean task. Lord knows, women have real complaints about men as well. We would just have to agree to disagree until time proves me right. But now, today, twirling his son in the chilly late afternoon air, Ian realized that he would not go back and change one single thing. The women realized that the system could not be saved, so they might as well get some virtue-signaling dopamine out of the crashing wreckage. They knew it could not last, so why stay sober for the demise? If I'd gotten them to agree to see, then we would have all embarked on the futile quest of reformation. And if we had saved the system, I would still be sitting at a desk, my skin gray under fluorescent lights, typing crap until the end of time. Band-aid off, his mother always used to say when he was a kid, gingerly pulling at one. But she didn't listen either. Oliver had once told him why he had called their sanctuary New Eden. Adam and Eve didn't have parents, so it fits, because so few parents made it here. Oliver had shrugged, his bearded face gleaming in the flickering firelight. Judgment day is every day, Ian. They knew they had not earned a place here, and they were sick of taking the unearned for once. Oliver was often cryptic, and Ian had turned the older man's words around in his mind more than once. Everyone in the sanctuary was wrestling with shock and sorrow. The greatest shock being how little sorrow there was. There was some shallow relief at not having to care for aging parents, and some darker, grimmer emotions centered around black karma, justice, and retribution. You tossed us into daycare. Terrible schools bullied us into self-lacerating universities. You supported everyone who hated our culture, our way of life, our history, our freedoms. You cheered on the contempt for boys, infected little girls with the mania of grandiosity, did not intervene when dating disasters arrived, refused to limit your appetites or accept any responsibility for your terrible choices. And we begged you to come with us to be saved. 
but you scorned and sat and sighed and waited for the state to come and save you, as you always had. There was also the strange silence of New Eden. There wasn't even any physical mail, let alone instant messages or global updates from humanity's hive mind. There was the work in front of you, at your fingertips, the immediate environment and potential dangers, both physical and animal. And then there was the world beyond, out there. And it was amazing to everyone how quickly and easily it was all forgotten. Oliver laughed at their amazement. (laughs) We evolved in tribes about this size, working the land, hunting and fishing and herding livestock and planting crops. Most people in history never traveled more than a few miles from the place of their birth. They had no idea of the world beyond. (laughs) Most of them couldn't even read. We have that advantage, at least. Hidden talents were teased out of people by the general lack of outside stimulation. Some tried their hands at composing and singing, with some reasonably good outcomes. Others wrote and presented good-natured comedies about the community. Others experimented with the limited cooking ingredients trying to come up with new dishes. A few of the younger girls tried putting on a modern dance show, but no one really cared. Dancing was in general considered just annoying and often vainglorious contortion. Musicians played, and the entire community danced, but very few people cared to only watch. There was dating, of course, closely watched over by older men and women. People made decisions with surprising speed and settled into domestic life like hogs into mud, as Cassie put it during one uproarious meeting. Cassie and another nurse were kept busy scurrying from house to noisy house. The pregnancy boom was so huge that it was referred to as the sonic boom. In general, life was often hard and harsh, but most people felt it was better. When there were problems, as was inevitable, there was always something that could be done. The sense of being caught up in a slow, grinding machine that took decades to disassemble one's body and history had vanished. And people felt the lifting of this weight with deep shock and relief. Mental disorders such as anxiety and depression were revealed as mere premonitions of inevitable disaster, the disasters of the debt and exploitation of the old world. Early on, men had gone on horseback to scout the surrounding villages and towns, looking for supplies, especially medicine. Everything had been so picked clean that there was little point going out after a while. A few scouts still ranged the outskirts of the community from time to time, and there were still guards posted even weeks after the last attack, but people's perceptions retreated into the day-to-day of their own chores and needs. And this was strange. People were, in general, better. They had to fit themselves into a community. They were learning to rely on each other for just about everything. No one could really survive alone. And so reasonable rules were hammered out and didn't even really need to be enforced. They were just followed. People did not feel humiliated or enslaved 
by obeying rules such as showing up for work on time, contributing to a group with as much energy as possible, bringing aid to the sick and injured, watching each other's children. These all became second nature to them. And they did not chafe against these guidelines because they were created and imposed by and for themselves, not inflicted by some predatory outside agency. The rules became second nature, obeyed without resentment, like gravity. And this became true freedom. A freedom none of them had ever tasted in their lives before. They relaxed into lives they could control, into rules they respected, into a world they could manage. Until until the day that the northernmost scout saw something from his tree perch. A variety of semi-lethal traps had been set up around the perimeter of New Eden to discourage any invading group. The policy of admitting individuals had been ferociously debated, and the vote had gone towards at least protecting solitary people from the traps. It was hard to imagine how one person could do much damage to the entire community. If they were sick, they would never have made it this far into the woods. If they were armed, it would be insane to attack an entire community. It was decided that someone who wandered in could at least be evaluated, maybe not allowed to stay, but at a minimum protected from the traps. Josiah was an old man, too old for much manual labor, but with eyesight still keen enough to be a decent lookout. He was chewing on pine nuts when he saw the strangest movement in the woods. Josiah had been an actor in his youth. One of his first roles had been as a soldier in Macbeth, disguising himself with tree branches in order to advance upon the castle. He saw what looked like a moving bush. Blinking with surprise, he found himself leaning forward as if the extra few inches could make any real difference. Lookouts were always assigned to the same place so they could become intimately familiar with the view and thus more rapidly notice any changes. There was a new bush. As Josiah watched, it crept forward. It was moving towards a pit trap, netting covered with leaves over a deep dug hole. What the hell? thought Josiah. That's the slowest, weirdest invasion in history. Impulsively, he cried out, Wait! Stop! Danger! The bush halted, then shrank back a few steps. Josiah could see the distant pink pinpricks of raised hands. Peace, cried the high voice. Stay where you are, shouted Josiah. As rapidly as his old limbs could manage, he climbed down the metal rungs embedded in the tree trunk. Counting his footsteps, he moved around each of the various traps, his eyes on the frozen ground. After a few minutes... Josiah passed the last pit trap and raised his eyes. He saw a young... Young? Not sure. Woman, at least, fairly sure of that. She had somehow attached a variety of leaves and branches to her clothing. For a moment, Josiah could not think of the word. Then it came to him, Dryad, a nymph of the woods, 
A fairy of the trees? She stood, motionless. You know I can see you, right? said Josiah. The woman smiled broadly. Oh, I know I'm not invisible. I, I just had this idea that all this might throw animals off the scent. Josiah nodded slowly. Where are you coming from? The city. He whistled. <whistles> Long way. She nodded. I'm not so brave. It was mostly by car. You must know of this place. The woman nodded. Yes. Do you know my sister, Cassie McMaster? Sure, we know everyone here. Her sister? He smiled suddenly. Lord, you must be freezing. Welcome, welcome. Let's get some... Let's get you inside. Get some hot food into you. Rachel laughed. <laughs> hey, strange question. Do you have any salmon? Fish? We don't get a lot of fussy eaters here. We hook trout. Oh, I'm not fussy. I just thought it would be appropriate in a way. I'm not sure why. Sorry, I sound so deranged. It wasn't the easiest journey. Well, it's over now. There's no place else for you to go from here. Welcome home. Heavens, Cassie will be so thrilled. We can take your name off the board. Sorry, it's where we keep a list of people. We don't know what happened to them. Has she had the baby? The old man laughed. <laughs> no, she's holding out. For, for you, maybe. I'm thrilled. There is no one else with you? No one else on the journey? No, I'm alone. I'm sorry you had to do that, murmured Josiah with deep feeling. It had to be done, and I'm better for it, replied Rachel, raising her eyes to his. He saw a real depth in her and touched his cap involuntarily. He reached out his hand. Come on, let's get you to your sister and Ian. Rachel hesitated. What? I want to see her, of, of course, but... Josiah simply waited. Rachel's face was flushed. She leaned forward. Her lips were red. Actually, she whispered, I'm here for Oliver. This has been the novel The Present by me, Stefan Molyneux, host of Free Domain, which you can find at freedomain.com. If you have enjoyed this book, I would really appreciate your support. It's out for free, no ads. You could help me out, please at freedomain.com forward slash donate. That's freedomain.com forward slash donate. And if you want to read the sequel to this book called The Future, you can find that at freedomain.locals.com. Thank you so much for listening.